Hey, I want to talk about love today. Anyone interested in love? Oh, come on. Anyone else interested in love? Come on, get us. Say to the person next to you, I love you. I love you, mate. It's a very common phrase. Now, you know the test for true love? If you love something, set it free. If it comes back, it was, was and always will be yours. If it never returns, it never was yours to begin with. If it just sits in your living room, messes up your stuff, eats your food, uses the telephone, takes your money and never behaves as if you actually set it free, you either married it or gave birth to it. <laughs> you hadn't heard that extra bit. Ah, well, look, you're probably not surprised that um, if I tell you that the Bible says we're to love God and we're to love other people, especially we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the truth is that sometimes we don't actually live lives that are very aligned with that truth of being loving. There are times when we're anything but that, and it's a shame. Um, left to ourselves, we can get on pretty badly with a lot of people. Reality TV proves that every week, doesn't it? And Christians can be pretty selfish. We can want our way. We can walk over other people. We can do some very hurtful things. Yet love is one of the top goals for our Christian life. God is wanting to transform us, see us transform throughout our life to be far more loving because he's loving. And you know, it's particularly relevant this thought of being loving as we go into a time of transition as a church. So I want to ask you, when you think about yourself, how loving are you actually? And will you remain loving during this next season of time? I want to talk from a scripture, um, but what scripture do you think I'm going to talk from about love? No one's got it yet. It's the other really big pick, uh, scripture. It's 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Let's just read it together up on the screen. Well, you, you can watch it as I read it. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Now, the context is he's speaking to Christians. This isn't just to everybody across the globe. This is to a Christian church. Love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. So the context is important. Any Christian loving, um, then they know God and, and they uh, are a child of God. But anyone who does not um, know God, uh, does not love, does not actually know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have, can I have these lights on please? So that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Surely we should love brother and sister in Christ. No one has ever seen God. Keep, keep working if you can. Thank you. That's, that helps me a lot, actually. Um, 
So we're, no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his, his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Verse 16. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, so we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels fear. If we're still afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love, and I'd put the word yet. We haven't fully experienced it. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates. If someone says, I love God, but hates his Christian brother or sister, that person is actually a liar. For if we don't love people, we can see, how can we love God whom we can't see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. Now, that is an amazing passage of Scripture, and it's a strong call for us to love other people who are in Christ, particularly the ones that we are part of the community with, and not to allow other things to come in and separate us out, but to deal with those things and come back to loving each other. Verse 7 talks about keeping grounded in straightforward, practical love. We're to love God and we're to love our fellow brothers and sisters. Verse 8 tells us that it's basically a goal for the Christian life because the closer we get to God, the more loving we will become because He is love. Verse 9 says that God demonstrates what, God, uh, what love looks like. The Son came to rescue us from sin. So love is not soft and weak. It's not. It will make difficult decisions and it will do tough things because it's the right thing to do. It's the loving thing. And in verse 10, we're told not to strive to love, to, love, to prove anything to God because we can't. We're to receive his love because it's based on his actions, not our actions. So don't let condemnation come into your heart about the weakness or the 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 lack we might have, we can be confident because he is the one who is loving us first. And then in verse 12 and 13, it says we're to love those around us in the church. That's a bit of a repeating pattern through that, through that passage, isn't it? We're to love our brothers and sisters. And as we do, more of God's love, it says, will flow in the church and in our lives. And in verse 17, it says our experience of God's love can increase. There's yet more for every one of us to be able to experience. So, Carl, who knows how many dances you're going to have with God. But for each one of us, it's exactly the same. And verse 20 tells us that our experience of God's love can also decrease. Christians can end up hating another Christian. And there's a major disconnect in our faith and in our walk when a Christian allows a lack of love or even hatred towards another brother or sister to get into their heart. But that's how powerful bitterness is in a person's life. It can do that. 
I think there's two things that stand out to me as we come to a close and leave here um, to do with love in this transition time. And the first one is that we need to continue to love reaching out to people who do not know Jesus Christ. We need to let that come into our hearts. Like Lynn said, it's a motivating thing every day of her life. We need to love the fact that Lynn and Rowan and Charles and others in the church here are just doing that all the time and, and, the, and let that, their love increase our love. But let go after God that we will say, God, I want to see people come to know you as Lord and Savior, that we do not allow ourselves to just remain as a club or to become a club. And the second thing is we need, that I see is we need to love the church. Jesus died to start the church. He didn't just die to forgive us so we'd all be individuals. He said, no, I've actually died so that you can become a community of people together. And we need to love the church. He calls it, as Carl said, and again, the flow of the Holy Spirit. We're called his bride. And no church is perfect. If you ever find one, don't join it. And no leadership is perfect either. But we must defend the church. We must protect her. We must defend her. We must build her. One of the sayings we used to have in the church here was, have a heart for the house where you just really want to see SABC go forward because you love this place. You love who God is and you love the people that he's called us to journey with. You know, the enemy's really good at causing problems in times of transition. Over my 36 years of ministry, I've gone into churches at various times and seen some of the kinds of problems that can arise in times of transition. When we came here, we took our, the church here, as many of you will remember, through a year of setting our church free because there had been so much naughtiness that had been taking place by brothers and sisters in Christ who were not growing in the love that God had for them in the way that he wants to. C.S. Lewis said, the devil's most effective tool is a little wedge. And he just slips it in between people. And it's not long before they're moving in different directions. I want to suggest two synonyms for love, because love is a completely overused word, right? Um, you know, we say we love ice cream, and we love God, and they're like <laughs> two ends of the spectrum, and we love other things in between, and we talk about it so love doesn't impact us in the way that it probably should. Jacinda took a synonym for love and used it for us, and it was the word kind, kindness. If we will have kindness, if you will put the word kindness into that passage that we've read instead of the word love, suddenly the meaning will come alive in a fresh way. We're to be kind to one another. And every time that we are kind and speak kindly of one another, love is flowing. But there's another word that I want to use this morning, and that's the word honor. Honor. If you honor someone, then you will always be loving. It's a truism. If you do things that honor someone, then love will always be coming out of your mouth and out of your action. And over 24 years here, Sandra and I have tried to build a culture where we have tried to demonstrate and see it built in everyone's life where we learn to honor one another. 
And I want to really encourage you as a church, as we step out, to embrace that as a, as a way of operating, a policy, if you like, a protocol, uh, a way of doing things, because it is totally biblical. And we haven't allowed people to lead who dishonor. The problem with dishonoring someone is relationships are supposed to be eternal. If we can't get together and, and find that harmony here, what are we going to do in heaven? Are we going to be dodging people all of thousands of years because we've never actually looked at the issue and come back and dealt with it and found that place of rightness in, in the middle? You know, in New Zealand, we're really familiar with cut-downs. It's part of our culture. When people from other cultures who haven't been in New Zealand, born in New Zealand, um, come in, they find it difficult with this cut-down kind of culture. But we can seek to elevate ourselves at other people's expense. And it's not Jesus' way. But being humans and having a fallen nature... Whenever people work together, live together, relate closely together, there will be problems, conflict, yeah. It's just human nature that this will happen. There'll be difficulties, there'll be relational tensions. It's normal, and God knows that it's normal, and he uses it. And that means that in church life, in our church life here, we will have disagreements, we will annoy one another, and we may even offend one another. And when we're offended, if we allow it to remain in our heart, instead of taking the time to work it through, the Bible says a root of bitterness will dig its way down into a person's soul and spirit and do an incredibly destructive work in there until that person is unable to see anything good in the person who offended them. And everything about them just seems wrong. Anything they say, anything they do, you can find a reason to criticize them because the root of bitterness is in you or me. And then that root of bitterness will cause the person to drip poison out to everyone they can. They'll slander, they'll gossip. And they'll try to create a faction, which is a group that's on their side. They're trying to get as many on their team as they possibly can so that they can attack the person who offended them. And that's why the, root of the Bible says, beware of a root of bitterness getting into our heart and soul. Don't let it dig in. But Jesus' work on the cross is the antidote to all relation, relational issues. The cross provides a way to reconcile and restore. It takes repentance. It takes people having to say, I examine themselves and say, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? It's hard. We have to own our own stuff. And it's humbling to admit that we're wrong and seek for forgiveness and restoration. One of the things I've discovered over 36 years of pastoring is that it's easy to walk together with someone when you're in agreement. You don't get relational issues happening. But it's when I, as a leader, say no to someone that I find what's in their heart. Whether they really are part of the team, whether they're really submitted to the church leadership, 
or they're just wanting their way and their agenda and they want to be in control. And it takes humility, as I said, for repentance and submission to see forgiveness that brings freedom. But that actually is the school of the Spirit. You can go to Bible college and get all sorts of theoretical training, but the school of the Spirit is real life. God trains us through the difficulties that go on in our lives and how we respond to them and how we deal with them and follow through and admit where we're wrong and seek forgiveness with people. It's the school of the Spirit. And that process grows us and it changes us from infants to mature, usable, trustable sons and daughters of Christ. You know, there are some people who genuinely come to faith in Jesus Christ, but they remain with a servant mentality because it's all about them and it's all about what they want to do. But a son and, the daughter and a daughter in the house love the church and they love New people coming into the church and finding that faith that transforms a life and takes them through this life into the next life. Luke 16, verses 10 to 12, you can look at it later. It says, the Bible says, if you can't be trusted with another person's property, why should God trust you with your own property? And it's a principle that relates to many things. It's spoken in the, in the context of finance and money. But it, it relates across in many ways. All of us have to be good followers. God's not looking for lone rangers. He's looking, he's got a body. And each of us have a particular place and function in that body. And we have to help another's ministry and another's vision before God will trust us with our own ministries. But sadly, some people try to take positions that belong to another person when they have no authority to be able to do so. And I'd like to share with you two scriptures as we, as this is my last sermon, and, and as I preach this today, I want to share this scripture. It's the same one that Paul spoke out as he was leaving Ephesus. He said in Acts chapter 20, he said, Keep watch. Uh, he was speaking to the elders of that place, and he said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Because I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you who will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men or women will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples. In other words, people that will follow them and have their flavor after them. So be on your guard. And friends, this has happened from Paul's day all the way down through church history at times and still happens today at times in too many churches especially during times like transition times when the leadership is changing in, in the uh, uh, church and, and, and people with agendas who see um, transition as an opportunity to push their agenda, agenda forward can sometimes rise up. They feel, I know how things should be done and I want to have my say and everyone should be following what I say. And the result is gossip, factions, manipulation, rebelliousness, and polarizing opinions that absolutely fracture 
a church or because someone's seeking control when they don't have authority. It's the fruit of witchcraft. We've got to realize, friends, the church is the hope of the world. We are the bride of Christ, and the devil hates us. And not everything is as it looks. Lynn brought that out so powerfully this morning of someone in the school who looked normal until there was manifestations taking place. And suddenly the work of the devil was exposed. You know, the Bible speaks of Christians who are snared by the devil. Wow, what a thought. Captured. Had a a snare thrown over. A Christian, not a non-Christian. This is a Christian who's been snared by the devil. How could that happen? And they're doing his work in his church. And at times they don't even know it. Christians helping the devil damage or destroy a church. It's this scripture here in 2 Timothy. We'll pick it up in verse 25. And this is a scary scripture. It it makes me stop and think about me, just as I hope it makes you stop and think about you. He talks to their leadership, which is the pastors and the elders. In humility, you'll have to correct those who are in opposition. If perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they might know the truth. See, that's the bewitching. They don't even realize that necessarily that what they're doing is having this destructive work in God's, in God's family, God's church. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. Wow. Wow, how scary is that, that we could become a tool of the devil. We get to heaven and it's not, well done, good and faithful servant. But God says, I've got some things to talk to you about 2021 and 2022. Please sit down. See, people who get captured by the devil rise up and try and take control with their agendas. They're really normal-looking people. As I've gone into churches over these years, at times, no one's got horns and a cape and dress in red or all in black. No one's got a badge here that says, beware. You know, they're lovely people. But the most recent one I saw just destroyed the children's work in a church. Because the person wanted this and this, and they were attacking the elders, and this and this. And eventually they took a whole section of the church out. This was a few months back. They've become a tool of the devil to break up God's beautiful church. There are other ways of sorting things, which is what honoring and love are all about. They're nice people who something bad has lodged in their heart called a root of bitterness, and it's dug down until all they can see is negativity. And they put that poison and they put that criticism out there to everyone that they can talk to. I could do better than this. I could do better than this. What they're doing is not right. And that poison just goes in and it has its destructive work into people. But if we will embrace loving and kindness, and honoring of each other, the damage won't even get a foothold. That's how powerful 
this thing of loving and honoring actually is. It stops it in its tracks. If everything that comes out of our mouth is to honor the person, not behind the scenes to cut them down and to poison someone about them, but to honor them. And God will work. You know, the third reason that honoring is so essential is that God has structured the church and the Christian life to be a a life and a church of freedom. Galatians chapter 5 says, It is for freedom Christ has set us free. Are you happy about that? I love it. I love it. Church is not about control. Christian life is not about control. God has given us freedom. God doesn't take away free will out of our lives. We're allowed to do the things that are on our heart to do. In love, in loving community with people. So we're to build a freedom environment in the church. And again, Sandra and I have sought to do this over these 24 years. To build a church that increasingly has greater and greater freedom, not control. Thomas Jefferson said this, that American president, he said, A free people are the most difficult to rule. I would say lead. A church is the most difficult to lead. A free church. Because free people are given the right to be able to decide for themselves. And they're allowed to have their own opinions. And they're allowed to disagree. And they're allowed to even to do their own thing. Because they have choice. That's what God has said about the Christian life. So how can this, that environment work without getting bedlam? If everyone's allowed to be free, how can you do it without bedlam? Everyone feeling that their opinion is the one that should be followed. No. Because God said, do it lovingly. Do it honorably. Do it kindly. That means humility, patience, understanding. All of those things, values, come into it as well. And church can become like this, a free place, because of the environment of love, kindness, and honoring of other people, working under godly leadership. Leadership that God has appointed and the church has recognized. Can you imagine what, with me what this church could be if everyone embraced honoring others? If everyone actively sought to protect relationships? If you honor people, you'll never behave badly towards them. You'll never speak slanderously about them. Even if you have to correct them with some honest feedback in a, in a loving way. So who do we honor? Who is it that we as the church of God are supposed to honor? Well, the Bible teaches we're to honor Jesus, parents, kings and rulers, church leaders. But then it goes on and says we're to honor everybody. Can you say everybody? Turn around and say you're an everybody. We are to honor everyone. Everyone, all people. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, in that free environment, yet not using our liberty as a cloak for vice, as a cloak for doing naughty things, as a cloak for um, trying to get our own way. Not using our liberty for that, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, it says. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. We're commanded to honor up, sideways, and downwards. In other words, 360 degrees of honoring. 
The youngest child in our midst needs to be honoured as much as Zoli. I want to highlight two verses as I draw to a close. I've never ever preached on the second one of these verses because it's inappropriate as it would be about me. But I'm leaving, so now it's not about me. (laughs) Let's have a look at the next one. It says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Not just single honour, but double honour because of what is laid down in their lives to be able to stand and to represent um, the church and in all of the workings of it. And then this one that I've never preached on, Hebrews 13. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. You know, the church will grow and it'll be a safe place as we live this out. If we embrace this today again, I know this is normal. I'm not telling you anything or preaching anything that we haven't said many times over the years, but but it will be a safe place as we live out an honouring environment. I wonder if I can have the eldership just come up. They don't know that I'm going to ask them, but would you come up, please? And can I have the music team come up too? I just want to highlight again, honouring is about 360 degrees. Nobody stands in any special spots. But we do stand in the places that God has assigned in the body as, a, as a, 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 an organism today. So Andrew, unfortunately, is unable to be here. But we have um, four of our elders here, uh, plus Andrew. And I, I just want to say, um, as I close now, We have the best eldership team, I believe, in the city, and I would say in the nation. We have leaders who've poured out their lives unselfishly for years and years so that this church can be well-led. And we've gone through deep waters at times, and we've sought to uh, gently, honourably hold people who are behaving badly to account now, one family, um, they just sold up their house and went to Australia and never returned because we as an eldership were facing them up to some of the behaviour that they had been acting out here within the church. And rather than face that, they thought it was better to make a new start somewhere else. And so that was their choice. But I call you today to honour these four, plus Andrew, five men and women. We've not always got everything right but we've always sought to do the right thing. And these leaders love SABC. That's you guys. And they love Jesus, and they love ministry, and that's what you're doing here at SABC, and they love the lost. And I could not commend any group or individual higher than I commend this team. As church transitions to um, a new senior pastor, even if it takes 12 months or even longer than that, which it did when I was, Sandra and I were coming into the role here, um, I want to say, honour them, honour them. 
Speak highly of them and take on board their words. And when you hear people dishonoring them, tell them to stop. Tell them to repent because the Bible calls it sin. And ask, I want to ask all of us today um, to, to, who want to follow the leadership of this team that's here, I want to ask you to stand. I want, I'm going to pray, um, and then I've asked for the blessing song that we can pray and sing over each other. You can turn around and sing it over the people that are your loved ones around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can sing it over the leadership team. You can sing it over Sandra and I for where we're going in the future, um, that God would be blessing us, and the elders, I can guarantee it, are singing it over your lives that you will be blessed. Father, I thank you that church is not a club, but it's something you are deeply, deeply interested in. I think it's the Message Bible in Ephesians that says you're in the throne room of heaven and your eye is totally upon your church and then upon your world. But the church is the center of your attention. And I pray, Lord, that this attitude of honor, we would continue to live it out. This attitude of respecting and listening and taking on board what leadership say, especially through this transition time, Lord, that you would cause it just to be the way we live. Protect us from what the enemy would like to do in bringing disruption and wedges between people. Take us on in unity, Lord. The Bible doesn't tell us, you don't tell us, Lord, to to build unity. You tell us to guard it and to maintain it. And I thank you for the unity that Sandra and I have been able to achieve. I know there's a lot more that could have happened. But, Lord, what we have been able to achieve, I thank you for it. And just pray, Lord, that, that you will use that foundation and grow it even more in our absence. And everybody said, Amen.